0: Let's stand at this time uh, for the reading of God's Word tonight. Message I call How Excellent Is Your Name. And here it is Psalm 8 and 1. Psalm 8 and 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. May God bless the reading of his word tonight. It's my prayer. You may be seated. How excellent is your name. For a few moments tonight, we're going to take on the greatest of all subjects. What has often been described as the greatest of all the academic disciplines, although it has fallen on hard times in academic circles these days, it is theology, theology, Uh, This is from the Greek word theos, which means God, and then ology, we add that on it, is the study of God theology, the study of God. Now, to consider God would require, obviously, a lifetime of sermons, and after preaching on God for every sermon for an entire life, we would not have exhausted the subject or mastered the material. And I understand that, so when we, just in a sermon, are going to talk about the theology, the study of God, how excellent is your name, uh, but in this psalm tonight that is before us, we can learn some vital truth about the character and nature of God. I'll put in a little plug for us, our Wednesday night uh, services this summer. Uh, we do, uh, we are carrying on our children's ministry, our summer program, and that's a uh, Uh, A great, great program for our kids. But also we're providing a Bible study for our parents and all who would like to attend. We begin in Psalm Psalm 19 that tells us the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. And so we talked about how God reveals Himself to humanity. Uh, This next Wednesday night we're going to move on to Psalm 11 that asks the incredible question, if the foundations be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? And uh, and so we'll spend some time this summer talking about these foundations that are so critical uh, to us surviving and thriving uh, in the world in which we live. And we'll begin that this next Wednesday night. So um, just a a kind of a shameless plug, I guess. uh, whatever. I, I, I think it's a, a good study for us on Wednesday night. I believe it will be a good use of your time if you're able to attend at 630 as we'll study then about these foundations. Uh, tonight we're here in Psalm 8 and 1 with the study of God. Oh Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. we begin by reminding you all tonight that it's impossible to know God without knowing Jesus Christ. The way to know God is to know Jesus. And the way we know Jesus, of course, is through His Word to us. You see, Jesus is so indelibly connected, intertwined with the Word that He gave to us, the message that He declared to us, the truth that God has revealed to us through Him— He is so intertwined with that that when John introduces us to him in John chapter 1, he is called the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there's no way for us to know God or to discover God outside of the revelation he has given to us. And of course, that revelation is all wrapped up in his son, Jesus Christ. Paul addressed this in his famous sermon on Mars Hill. When he stood there before that pagan audience of, of uh, intellectual giants and he confronted their idolatry, he challenged them right off the bat You are in all things too superstitious. <laughs> oh, the people at Athens, their problem was not that they had, didn't have enough religion, they had way too much. And that's true of a lot of people. Uh, Because, you see, you can have a whole lot of religion without having a relationship with the living God. And that's exactly what he told them. You've got all of these idols, but you ought to know better, he said. Because since uh, your own poets say that, uh, and he did, he quoted their own poets. He said, your own poets said that we are his offspring. And so Paul made a very logical thing. If we are God's offspring, then we ought not think that God is a rock. If we are his offspring, you ought to be able to look in the mirror and not think that God is a piece of wood or a piece of gold or whatever. Uh, because we are made in his image. And he described this as a time of ignorance. And he gave a very interesting concept when he said that, that you are feeling after him. Uh, some translations had that groping you're reaching out for him, feeling after him. If somehow, maybe, you might find him. Uh, but they hadn't found him in Athens. And they never would. And We might go uh, searching after God. And a lot of people do. And uh, they go on all kinds of spiritual pilgrimages these days. And they go looking after something and... Some use powerful uh, substances. I I mean, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s, and, you know, I really didn't know even what was going on. Of course, I grew up in Taylor, Arkansas, as I told you. It took a long time uh, for some of the—by the by, the time the, the 60s arrived in Taylor, they were already past, and we were in the 80s, and I was grown and gone. I mean, it was—we were a little bit behind down there, but— I, I, Uh, I did read up on some of those guys, taking that uh, strange stuff and going on those trips, they called them, uh, in their mind. uh, A lot of things going, people going on spiritual quests, all kinds of cultures had this blindly feeling after God in the hopes that they might find Him. But they don't. I've said it before tonight, I'll say it again. There's only one way to know God. And that is through Jesus Christ. And the way we know Jesus Christ is because he's revealed himself to us in his word. As God's children then and servants of his kingdom, we speak of God. And when we speak of God, we speak of him from that perspective. We know Jesus Christ. And because of that, we know the truth that has set us free. And yet we find ourselves all the time around people who have entirely different concepts of who God is. And just because they talk about God, folks, remember tonight, don't mean they know God. Just because they talk about Jesus, doesn't mean they know Jesus. Or even that they have a concept of Him that is remotely similar to what you and I have. You might talk to a Muslim sometime, a follower of the Islamic belief system. And they'll tell you they believe in the same God we do, though his name is Allah. They'll tell you they believe in Jesus. And they're pretty proud of that fact. But if you look a little more closely, you'll find out that the Jesus that Islam believes in is one who is coming back. That sounds familiar, right? Jesus is coming back. The Muslims believe that. They believe that when Jesus comes back, he's going to come back to destroy all of the Christians who have worshipped him erroneously that to kill them all. And all the Jews who have worshipped the wrong God. And help then establish, Muhammad his prophet, then establish the reign of Allah over the world. Jesus is coming back and he'll be a servant of Allah and Muhammad. Obviously, we apply that logical syllogism. Uh, that which is different is not the same. That which is different is not the same. You see, they they worship a different Jesus and a different God. You may think, well, that's an extreme situation. Oh, no, no, it's not. We cannot assume that just because a person says they believe in God or believe in Jesus, that they are serving the same God that we know. In Genesis chapter 1, you see... God said, Let us make man in our own image. And we'll talk more about that passage in a moment. One preacher said, We've been trying, humanity has been trying to refer, re, return that favor ever since. And what he meant by that is that God said, Let us make man in our image, but now man wants to make God in his image. So that we, we see the God, not, ever, not the way that he reveals himself to be, but to make him whatever we think he should be. This little thought uh, a matter of God in matters of holiness, or of righteousness, or of judgment. Uh, isn't it interesting that uh, when Paul stood before Felix, he reasoned with him of temperance. Of, that is, of, of, righteousness, of, of, ju- of righteousness and of judgment, self-control, temperance, and of judgment to come. Felix trembled, by the way, but he didn't believe. We remind ourselves of the same situation where Paul preached on Mars Hill. And he was reasoning with them. And they listened until he preached that Jesus would judge the world in righteousness and that he proved it by rising from the dead. And so when he presented then the God who is going to judge the world in righteousness and that he has proven this through Jesus Christ and his resurrection, they were through with that. Uh, People don't sit still very long these days. To hear about the Jesus who is coming back in judgment. But he is. The Jesus we'll stand before and give an account to. We will. He is. The Jesus who all judgment has been committed to the son. Yes, that Jesus. Now if we're talking about the. Uh, the little baby Jesus, uh, that, you know, they they'd like that one. If they're talking about the loving Jesus that loves everybody just as they are. If we're talking about the Jesus who will bless us no matter what we do or how we believe. Or, uh, that's there for us whenever we call him. And is perfectly content to let us put him over out of our life and out of our mind. If we're talking about that kind of Jesus, there's a, there's a lot of room for him. Although in American culture... Even, I would say, any notion of Jesus is rapidly falling on hard times. But for ourselves tonight, for our children, for our friends and neighbors, we need to be able to clearly articulate who the true God is. And we don't need to be able to have to take them all the way from Genesis to Revelation in order to do that because we've got a great psalm right here before us, Psalm 8 and 1. One verse, actually two. And in these couple of verses, uh, we have some incredible truth about the real nature of God that we can use to share with anybody. It reminds us uh, also of ourselves. It thrills our own souls. We can say like the hymn writer, all that thrills my soul is Jesus. (laughs) Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his love. So for our own benefit and also then for others that we might be able to share this truth with. Maybe you don't have time to get much in. But you can get in Psalm 8, 1 and 2 and just reading it to them. (laughs) Or committing it to memory and sharing it. You never know what God will do with it. Right up front then, God reveals himself as self-existing. We are dealing with the self-existing God. And that's in the first two words, Psalm 81, O Lord, O Lord. Now, I've told you on Wednesday night, we've talked of it often. When you see the word Lord in all caps in your English translation, you are looking at some form of the word Jehovah, we call it. Yahweh, it probably could have been. But it is that sacred name of God that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. The self-existing one. Now, sometimes your children or your grandchildren might ask you, where did God come from? They might ask you, when did God begin? And the answer is right there in his name, I am, I am. And that's a great truth to get across to him. Well, you know, God's name is I am. And so with God, there is, there is no past. There was not a I was. There's no future. I will be. I am. And wrapped up into his self-existence is always Or the fact that God has always been. He is in a state then of the eternal present. I am that I am. He did not have a beginning. He won't have an ending. Our God exists then in a way that is completely different than anything else that we can know. Now, when God revealed this name to Moses, it was at the burning bush. And you remember what caught Moses' eye about that. The bush was burning, but it didn't burn up. Now, I have burned a lot of bushes over the course of my time. And I can tell you that every one that I've ever burned, especially if they were green, they went up in a hurry. You throw a green bush on a hot fire and it's not going to last long. You're going to have a big whoosh and some ashes pretty quickly. But this one didn't. It was burning. The fire was real. It was burning. don't know what kind of fire it was, but whatever it was, it was there a burning bush that did not burn up. wasn't consumed. Everything else in creation is used up or burned up, but not this one. The fire just kept going. That's what caught Moses' attention. That's why he turned aside to look more carefully. Here is something that is burning, but it is not burned up. You see, God gave him a visual aid. (laughs) This is how I am. Uh, I'm I'm not consumed. Uh, I don't don't need any fuel for for my fire to burn. And I I can burn. and, And I don't need anything. I don't have to consume something in order to make a fire. No, God God doesn't need that. He is self-existing. And so with that object lesson, it's no wonder that God revealed himself as I am that I am. He needs nothing to sustain himself. He is eternally powerful and self-existent. And again, that makes his nature beyond our ability to comprehend. We only have a pitifully few years to try and wrap our heads around this truth. And I've often reflected, I've I've recited it many times at many funerals over the years. uh, The passage that Job quoted when he spoke of this. Man that is born of a woman, he said, is a few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth like a shadow and continueth not. And shalt thou open thine eyes upon such an one. He addressed God and bring him into judgment with thee. Here was the eternal, immortal God. And yet here I am, just a man born of a woman, few days full of trouble, Fleeing like a shadow. Cut down like a flower. How can I possibly understand everything I need to understand about God? And let me tell you something. We can't. We can never, ever get our mind wrapped around this eternal concept of God. But, as the writer of the book of Hebrews says, <laughs> that's a great statement. But we see Jesus. Amen? we see jesus made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of god should taste death for every man but we see jesus oh we can't stretch our minds around how god is or even who god is we can see jesus but still we cry with the psalmist, Oh Lord, O oh Lord. It is an exclamation, Oh Lord, O oh Lord. We remember then, I told you we'd talk about it a little bit more. Remember Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our image. Well, Brother Rich, I thought God was only one God. Yes, that's correct. Then who was he talking to when he said, let us make man in our image? Well, of course, we know the truth of that. We know that God is one God and that he exists in three distinct persons, yet with only one personality. It is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, yet one personality, God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three are one. As if it wasn't already challenging enough for us to understand. understand. I'm the all-sufficient one. I'm the self-existing one. I I, I don't need anything in my existence. I don't need anything to exist. I don't have to consume anything. I don't need any fuel. I I don't need anything. I am self-existing. I am eternally existing. As if that wasn't enough. Oh, by the way, I am a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, yet one God, three in one. Yeah. I'm glad tonight that I can stand before you and tell you that God exists in a way that we can't completely comprehend. If we could wrap our finite minds around it. There wouldn't be much to it. God is self-existing. The psalmist, you see, set a mouthful with just those two words. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Then he moved quickly to the second thing. Our God is ruling. He is ruling. Oh, Lord, our Lord. You see, the second Lord in the passage is is not in all caps. That's because it's a different word. So he has moved from the Hebrew word Jehovah to the word Adon or Adon. We know it more uh, frequently by the name Adonai, Adonai, Adonai. And we say, what does it mean? It means Lord, Lord. It is simply another name for God. Typically, the Orthodox Jews, when they would be reading a text like this, and they would see the name Jehovah, they would not say Jehovah. Uh, they would substitute the word Adonai uh, when they would read, O oh, oh Lord. And uh, so when they were reading this psalm, it would be Adonai Adon, Adonai Adon, or however they would say it. I, I, don't, I don't claim to be able to pronounce Hebrew Uh, very well. I never could get my South Arkansas tongue wrapped around those gutturals. I I just couldn't do it. Uh, But uh, uh, we have here a reference to the fact that God is the Lord our master our owner. So without that last Adonai, just Adon uh, God is our ruler God is our sovereign, our master. It is, you see, the nature of royalty to rule and the nature of the subjects to royalty to recognize that rule. David himself was a king of Israel. You do remember that. So he was well familiar with what this meant. Oh God, our ruler. But we see in this passage then that David understood completely who the true ruler was. There came a time when David began to think of building a house for God near the end of his life. And God sent the prophet Nathan to go and speak to David. And he said to him in 2 Samuel 7 and 8, Now therefore so shalt thou say unto my servant David, of my servant, my servant David, he said. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. <laughs> uh, David, you were out there tending sheep. And I brought you in from following the sheep coat, And before that day was over, you were anointed to be the king over all Israel. Just a shepherd boy. You remember. Uh, David did remember. David knew who the true ruler was. O oh Lord, our Lord, our ruler. And tonight it's important for us to know that this is where modern humanity so frequently finds itself at odds with the one true God. The God of the Bible, you see, is our ruler. He's our creator. We are answerable to him, and we are accountable to him. We should obey him. And it's here that Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that men did not like to retain God in their knowledge. There's an epidemic of that in America. You'll go to work if you're still working tomorrow with somebody who really don't much believe in God anymore. And if you have a conversation with them, you'll find out that most of the time it's because they really didn't like God telling them what to do. The idea of being accountable to God, being answerable to God, to having a God who can tell us what to do, that's just not real popular. But if you believe in the God of the Bible, then you believe, first of all, that God is self-existing. And that's important for us to know He is eternally self-existing. He is in need of nothing. He has nothing that he has to consume in order to exist. He is without beginning. He is without ending. He is triune in his nature. Three persons, one uh, personality. And then this God is the ruling God. He rules. He rules. O Lord, our Lord, our ruler, our master then God is preeminent. and He'd say this at the end of the psalm, if you'll look down and look at the last verse. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. Humanity has always tended toward being self-absorbed, to be focused on ourselves and on what belongs to us. But our understanding of God gives us the incredible knowledge that our God is all-powerful. That our God is self-existent and eternally present. And that this God rules and is sovereign over all so that we serve Him. And He doesn't serve us. We serve Him. We look then at what He has done. And we open our eyes every day on the majesty of this creation. Oh, my God has created a beautiful world for us. And we're still discovering more and more. You know, we think about how that science has developed the ability then to plumb the vast reaches of space. And that's wonderful. But we've also developed the ability just over the last few decades, the ability to to go deeper and deeper, to look closer and closer through electron microscopes and even more words that I can't even pronounce. That allows them to go deeper and deeper and to look at smaller and smaller things. And they look out further and further. And you know what they see? If they'd look with the eyes of faith, they'd see the glory of God. When we look smaller and smaller, you know what we see? Uh, We see the glory of God. The same God that created those massive stars and galaxies also created those incredibly complex one-celled organisms that We've just now developed the ability to look at. Uh, The more we look, the more we see the glory of God. When we think about this earth and its majesty, you and I think biblically. We see the earth and its majesty and we think about the majesty of God. That's what the psalmist was saying. Oh Lord, oh our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above all the heavens. So the earth and the heavens were both showing the the majesty, the majestic, the excellent nature of God. Today, so many are giving themselves and willing to disrupt everything, basically, To save this beautiful, glorious planet Earth. In a way we understand it, it is beautiful. Uh, But it doesn't matter how beautiful it is. This world is under the judgment of God. In the Bible, because this world has suffered the curse of sin. The Bible tells us without question. Simon Peter told us very plainly. That this earth and everything in it and on it is going to be burned up. The earth and all its works will be burned up. It's headed for judgment. We can't save it. But we almost understand why that people would do that. And we don't really have to puzzle about it. Because again, the apostle Paul told us why. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 25. When people exchange the truth of God for the lie, not a lie, the lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's the lie who is blessed forever, amen. That is, they worship the creation rather than the creator. And so it's sad to see so many people willing to go so far. Some even proposing now that what really happened needs to happen in order to save the planet is for about 90% of the current population of humanity to die. Some radical uh, preservers of the earth are just fine with killing off humanity, at least in theory. And whenever I've read about or heard about someone suggesting those kind of things, I always think, you know, I, I bet you they're not thinking about themselves. It's all them other people that need to die. They exchange the truth of God for the lie. They do not like to retain God in their knowledge. And they worship the creature, the creation. Rather than the creator. Yet we understand God. We understand that God is preeminent above all. That his name is set above everything. And somehow those who are so devoted these days to saving the planet. Planet. And, and who worship then the creation rather than the creator for some, somehow, they don't really seem to notice the irony of having to save their God. I mean, if you're worshiping the planet and you're, you've got to save the planet, it's kind of ironic. You see, we worship the God that is the other way around. He's saving us. Amen. I mean, that's, that's the way that works. God's name is excellent. Or majestic. His name. Names can be sullied. sullied. Names can become inglorious. And even infamous. How would you like to have the last name of Bundy? No doubt some do. How would you like to have the last name of Hitler? No doubt some do. Nothing sullies the name of our God. Nothing. How excellent is thy name. And his glory is above all. Too many people only use the name of God as part of a curse word. And every time I hear somebody do that, I naturally assume that I'm dealing with a person who doesn't know God Because if they'd ever read Psalm 8, they wouldn't be cursing God and using the name of God in such a way. And if you're a Christian tonight and you struggle, you developed a bad habit, an awful habit of using God's name as a curse word, I've got one word for you tonight. Stop. 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 My mama used to talk about washing my mouth out with soap. Not because I said God's name in vain, just some of the other things I said. So if you're having trouble using God's name and you claim to be a Christian, put your bar of soap in your pocket. And then wrap it up in Psalm 8 and 1. How excellent is thy name above the earth. And every time you say it, read that passage. Wash your mouth out with soap. Maybe you use ivory soap. I don't think ivory would hurt you any. <laughs> you say, well, brother, it's your kidding, aren't you? Only slightly. Only slightly. If you're using the name of God as a curse word and you're a Christian, you need to stop. Because we have the excellent and glorious name, the name that is above all names. So God is self-existing, the psalmist tells us. God is ruling. God is preeminent. Excellent is his name above all on all the earth, more glorious than all of the heavens. Is self-existing, ruling, preeminent. And then lastly, God is worthy of praise. Psalm 8 and 2. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. Because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. This psalm was quoted by our Lord Jesus Christ. And he quoted it in Matthew 21 and 16. And he said unto them, Hearest thou what these say? This was when uh, the Pharisees were coming to him. And talking about the little children who had praised him. Hear thou what, thou, what they say. Jesus said unto them, yes. Yeah, I hear what they're saying. Yeah. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? I don't try to explain this tonight so that strength in Psalm 8 and 2 meant praise. Praise, according to Jesus, I just take Jesus' word for that. I don't really have to explain it. He told us, that's what the psalmist, and I know scholars tell us that he was quoting from the Septuagint, and he may very well have been. Uh, Psalm 8 and 2, I know the meaning of it, the application of it, because Jesus told us, out of the mouth of babes and suckling infants, you have perfected praise, praise. Now, if we wanted to see that the strength that the psalmist referred to in the Hebrew, that that strength out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, thou hast ordained strength. And if we saw in that that God was giving them the strength, uh, it's uh, God's breath that is in their lungs. It was God who gives them the strength to cry. So that the cry of every newborn babe, and if you've ever been around when a baby was born, and most of you have, if you've ever been around when a baby is born, you know that you were listening for that cry. God gives them the strength to cry. Babies and nursing infants, though, covers the realm of the progression of childhood expression. Um, babies speak gibberish. I don't know what else to call it. You know what I'm talking about. Babies speak gibberish. Sometimes we learn to speak their language. You know, it's kind of funny how they start saying this stuff, and then first thing you know, we're all saying it. It's it's odd how that goes. And, and, And the other thing, especially those nursing infants, what do they do? They cry loud, loud. Whether crying or cooing, we'll put it that way. The voice of every infant according to our Lord Jesus Christ is a testament to the fact that God has given that child the strength to cry. There's a baby that's come in the world. God has given it strength. And therefore their cry according to Jesus is saying praise the Lord, praise the Lord. God speaks perfect baby. <laughs> I like that. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, you have perfected praise. God gave him a voice. God gave him the ability to use it. Every bit of it says, praise the Lord. Our God is worthy of praise. By the way, we don't have to look any further than Psalm 8 and 2 to know why. That abortion is such uh, a a subject that it's so feverishly uh, protected, so fought for in our culture, while the devil delights in it. All you have to look at is Psalm 8 and 2. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained praise. I've told you this before, but I can't help but tell you tonight. Again, that every time I hear a baby crying in this church, I smile. Say, doesn't it bother you, Brother Rich? Not a bit. Because that baby, according to the Word of God, is saying, praise the Lord. And I can praise right along with them. I can praise right now that we're a church that has babies. Lots of churches don't. I can can praise the Lord that mom and dad is bringing that baby to church. Lots of mom and daddies don't. And if they're in here and they're crying and cutting loose, hey, I'm just going to get a little louder and go right on about my business. They're not going to slow me down a bit. I just smile. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. If y'all could take a cue from them, say amen a little louder every now and then. That'd be all right. I want to be amen. Thank you, Brother WC. Out of the mouth of uh, babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected praise. Jesus once talked about the rocks that would cry out in praise. The rocks. Not sure how that would have happened. But I know one thing. If babies can praise the Lord, and if rocks can praise the Lord, and if the trees can praise the Lord, that's in the Bible too. And if the birds can praise the Lord, that's in the Bible too. How much more can you and I praise the Lord who know Him? Our God is praiseworthy. He is worthy to be praised. So we lift up our voices and praise Him. In a world full of those who curse God, I want to be one of those that says praise the Lord. You do too. And so here in this psalm, and this a few words that it gives to us, are some great expressions of who God is, the real God. And something that we can share and hide in our own heart then and share with others. Because our God is, is self-existing. Our God is ruling. Uh, our God is above all. He is exalted. He is excellent in all the earth. And He is praiseworthy. Worthy of praise. Let's stand together at this time.